And we've been going through the Beatitudes. Our main focus today will, is going to be on uh, blessed, we'll be starting with blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted. Um, but we're going to keep reading this text, and uh, it really is something that we can um, repeat and, and, and really make a, a repetition of because we need to have it hid in our hearts. And so I wanted to read this before you today. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Let me pray for us before we get into this text. You may be seated. Go ahead and pray for us. Father in heaven, Lord, we stand before you. Uh, we acknowledge your goodness and your mercy that you have granted us, Lord, just to be in your midst, to be under the preaching of your word, under the, the, the public reading of your word. Um, those are undeserved mercies, Lord, that you have given us, that you have bestowed on us as children of God, if in fact we are in Christ today. Uh, Lord, I thank you. And God, I want to pray today for uh, the peace in our world, as we see and as we've taken note of already today. And also, God, I pray that you would grant peace in your church. I pray that you would give us uh, the grace, O oh God, to restrain evil in the world and the power to overcome it. I uh, pray that in the church, Lord, that you would uh, give attentive ears um, to hear your word, sheep that were, are responsive to your word. And I pray that, that your word would come today uh, with conviction. And I pray that, uh, Lord, that you would sustain me and that you would stir our congregation to greater and greater worship. I pray that you would grow our love and grow our faith. And God, I pray that you would give me faith to preach your word and sustain me as I do it, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Well, as we are wrapping up, we are wrapping up the Beatitudes today. I just wanted to say that it's been my pleasure again and my honor to come before you and present these and teach these to you. I know that they've been extremely brief and we, I know that for myself at least, I wanted to, uh, to preach all of these as at least one individual sermon is really what they deserve. And so uh, to refresh our memories, I just wanted to uh, ponder on what we've learned thus far in the Beatitudes. And so we, what, what we have been saying for the last weeks, the last couple of weeks, is that uh, though many have sought to merit right standing before God by means of obedience to conforming, uh, to the Beatitudes, or by practicing these Beatitudes, let us never forget this, that the Beatitudes are not instructions on how to get into the kingdom of God, as if you could merit salvation by, uh, by just fulfilling these Beatitudes, but they are, they are, in, but, but they are des descriptions on who is in the kingdom of God. And so by virtue of our union with Christ, each of these Beatitudes finds their expression in our lives, each of these are the children of the new nature. The new nature gives birth to these beatitudes. And so that's what we see here. These are the good works that stem from the good seed, the saving seed of the gospel, which is sown by Christ and is here said to be blessed by Christ. And so last time we noted three things that are important to keep in mind as uh, we go through this text. And I wanted to list them just briefly before you. We looked at the origination, where these originate, each of these beatitudes. And we said that, that these declarations of blessedness, that they have their place derived, they are rooted in and presuppose the hearty and approval, the good pleasure of God to bestow 
worthy gifts and blessings on unworthy people for the glory of his name. In the second place, we looked at their signification or their significance and said that the word blessed denotes the unique and unmerited favor that a particular individual finds and experiences with God. And we looked at the termination and said that the word blessed is a state or condition of the soul. It expresses the bliss and the gladness that the recipient of God's grace is currently living in because what Christ has done for them and not at all because of something that they have done for themselves. And so moving forward, we'll retrace just kind of what we've gone over in the first uh, four Beatitudes. And so as I mentioned previously, that all these Beatitudes, they naturally and spiritually progress from one to the other. And you could also say that the Beatitudes are divided into two categories. The first four Beatitudes describe the inward exercises of the heart and man's attitude towards God. And the last four Beatitudes describe the outward exercises, how, how the inward exercises of the heart with man's, his, when, he has a, when he's been confronted with God, how he expresses that. And this happens with his attitude towards man, the fruit and the good works that he expresses therein. And so let's look at the inward exercises of the heart. We have in the first that in every sinner that God is efficaciously uh, drawing to himself, that God drives that man into himself. That's what he does, so that he may have a true knowledge of who he really is to see the dark and dead state of his soul naturally and how morally, morally corrupt he is and to see how needy a sinner he is of a savior and causes that man to mourn and to bitterly weep his lost and poor condition once it has been discovered to him. And from here the poor, the poor soul surrenders his heart to God and places himself between the anvil and the hammer of God's word to have his life shape and conform to God's will. He's meek and made gentle, and he's humble. He's seen that his sins are what put Jesus Christ on the cross, and he's seen the grace and the love of God that pours down from the cross of Jesus Christ for him. He's made a break with sin so that he might cling to Christ as his greatest good, and he ever lives and hungers and thirsts, to obey and love and please the one that's loved him most. And so what I've just described are the consequences of events, or the, sorry, the sequences of events that take place at conversion, which are reasonably and truthfully here described in the Beatitudes, and that leaves us with the last four Beatitudes to explore here. And so once God has driven us into ourselves to get a knowledge of who we are and who he is, he then drives us out of ourselves for the benefit of, of our fellow man. And so that is where we find ourselves here in this text. We have this in the Greek, makarioi hoi eleemenos, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So before we dive deeper into the meaning of this verse, let us dive deeper into the meaning of the word merciful. The Greek word for merciful is eleemenos, which is not a verb, which is very key to understand. It's not a verb. It's an adjective that means to have and be full of pity and loving kindness and compassion toward others. It is the gracious disposition of a forgiven soul. Though none but the merciful will in the end receive mercy from God, their mercifulness is not the cause of their reward. Their mercifulness is only the fruit, but it's not the root and so a merciful and gentle disposition of the heart is the natural result of one's receiving the mercy of Christ. As we just said earlier, Christ is the origination of this disposition, and it terminates on the man who finds favor with God and is humbled and made meek and gentle. And this, he receives this disposition by, over, by, by undergoing this conversion. Notice how purposely and divinely Jesus stuck this beatitude where he did, though. And notice how this beatitude of mercy isn't mentioned first. That's very interesting and in the place that it is mentioned as the fifth beatitude. And so we can talk about the reasoning for that, but let us first answer this question. What is mercy? 
What is mercy? I define mercy this way. Mercy is the hand that extends relief to those who are buried under the heavy burdens of pain, distress, and misery in whatever circumstance they present themselves. And so let's answer another question. Who is mercy for? Who is mercy for? Mercy is only for those who are sensible to their pain, distress, and misery. In one of his sermons, Jonathan Edwards says this, They who are not sensible of their misery cannot truly look to God for mercy. For it is the very notion of divine mercy that it is the goodness and grace of God to the miserable. Without misery in the object, there can be no exercise of mercy. And so you see the wisdom of, of, of God placing this beatitude where it does after the poor in spirit, right? You have to see your misery before you can see God's mercy. Mercy must come after misery because it presupposes misery. And mercy relieves the burden of misery, and that's its purpose. And that is why one is made to see their misery and poverty before God. And before God extends his hand of mercy. And if I just may digress into a small uh, little rant here, uh, you, you know, we, see that, we see how God has, by his wisdom, how he has rightly aligned and he has uh, rightly ordered, divinely ordered each of these beatitudes. Um, but you see in our culture that something has gone amiss when you skip the first four and you go straight to the last four. And so you see this in the social gospel, you truly do, that, that the saving gospel is being substituted for the social gospel. And they go straight to kindness and acts of mercy while skipping the first four beatitudes, even though the fifth beatitude is built on the, the preceding four. And so this is why that the social gospel is really powerless to change your life, because it never gets to the gospel. That's why it's so superficial, and you can see it in the churches who preach it. And so they only get to the temporal needs of man without ever meeting the eternal need of man. And so this beatitude can only be rightly understood, this, this mercy to the unconverted sinner. It can only be rightly understood uh, once, once you have received uh, this mercy, once you have received, uh, once you have seen your misery, and once you have gone through these steps of conversion where God takes you to his mercy himself. And so that's actually what the first four talk about. One's right standing with God. And so they point miserable men to the merciful Savior. And that is what we as Christ must do as our primary duty. And so let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the advocates of the social gospel ever preach the gospel? Probably not. But what we must be is Christ-like and begin our evangelistic conversations with how Christ began his ministry. The first thing that came out of Christ's mouth in Matthew 3, 2 is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so as, as Christ was an ambassador for the Father to bring sinners to the Father, so are we to be ambassadors for Christ and to bring sinners to God that is who we are, and that is what we do. And I like food, don't get me wrong, but we don't promote salvation and eternal life by throwing water bottles at people and bags of chits, but by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we do it. And so mercy towards men can only follow when men has had mercy on men, when God has had mercy on men. And only when we have learned what mercy is by experiencing misery first can we, cup, can we uh, then show mercy to others. So how does God show mercy to sinners? How do we learn that God is merciful? And I wanted to take you through a couple of texts, really some wonderful texts on how we have received experience, and by learning from God, we show this, this mercifulness. And so I wanted to take you, 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God of our, blessed, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ, 
And Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. True mercy can be expressed only when it has been experienced and received. And so only when men are renewed in the image of God can they meaningfully and acceptably reflect the attributes of God. So God is the fountain and you are the stream and not the reverse. Men are to show mercy, not in the attempt to receive mercy, although they will, but because they have received mercy. In the same way that God doesn't tell you to be holy and I'll make you holy, but be holy because I made you holy. Because I made you holy. And so if you are not holy or if you are not merciful to others, that is a clear indicator that you have not received righteousness or mercy from God yourself. You remember what Christ said to the multitudes that were listening to him in this sermon, that if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Friends and brethren, let me ask you a question. Does the mercy and forgiveness that you've received manifest itself in your life to others? And when people look at you, can they see and sense that you've been divinely taught on the subject of mercy, that you've been through Christ's school of mercy that you've learned from him. To forgive and be forgiven, to show mercy and receive mercy are indissoluble and unbreakable, unbreakable links of character in every Christian. To profess one thing and not act according to this profession actually proves the contrary of what you profess to be. For instance, 1 John 1, 6 says this, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in, walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 2, 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. And 1 John 2, 9, just a couple of verses later, he says, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. However, brethren, we are not those who profess one thing only to do another. If you are merciful, it is because you have been taught of God and have become his friend. If you are merciless, it is because you have not been taught of God and you are his enemy. And so what does it look like to show mercy? And I wanted to take you through one of my favorite passages and, par and, and parables in the New Testament. And you can turn with me there. It's, 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 it's quite a, little, a lengthy story, and I wanted to read it to you. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 10. If you would open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 25. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. He says, And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This is a priest, a so-called man of God, whose business is to love and show mercy to his neighbors. The first and second, these greatest commandments that Jesus is quoting here, he knows these. And so this is his job. And so he, he, what happens here is he, he changes the direction of his journey for the purpose of not being burdened with another's misery. 
And the story continues, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And so a Levite was someone who was a kind of an assistant to a priest, uh, and he too was a religious man. So that's just key to understand. These are religious people, but a Samaritan. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. And this, I believe, Jesus says to shame the Jews. It would have greatly stung their pride to see Jesus credit their rivals with something commendable. The Samaritans, who were really an, an offshoot of a dissenting Jewish community. But notice what the Samaritan does. Picking up in verse 33, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. That word compassion, the description of that word means he was moved to action from the depth of his bowels. He was so inwardly hurt and sympathetic with this man, he couldn't, he couldn't go on with his journey or pass on the other side of the road like the religious men. But he was so moved and so broken, this is what he does. It says that he felt compassion and he came to him. So he stopped what he was doing and bandaged up his own wounds. So he probably wasn't ready to, to, give this, to be merciful to this man. So you can, maybe by just uh, context, maybe he used his own clothes at this point. He bandaged up this man's wounds because he was left half dead. And it says that he was pouring oil and wine on them, using his own money. Those things were expensive then. And he put him on his own beast, which, which, which probably meant that he got off and was walking and the man was on his beast. He humbled himself and got off and put this man on. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. And so Jesus puts the question to this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, this is the person that really was despised by the Jews, a Samaritan, the man who really is our rival, the one who showed mercy toward him. He was, he was moved to confess that. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. It's a remarkable picture of mercy. And so we are called to love our neighbors. This means that we have been called to the ministry to minister and have mercy on those who are burdened with misery and have need of your help, our help in the church of God. Since God has called us to this great task, he will equip us also to meet these needs, whether they are eternal needs or whether they are material needs. God will equip us to do this. And brethren, I know you, you know this. I know that you understand this story. It's not hard to grasp. It really isn't. It's much harder to apply uh, because it calls us to live selflessly and so I, I follow after uh, Jesus Christ himself and his footsteps. So blessed are the merciful. That is what God desires from the person who has received mercy. That is how we express it for they will be shown mercy. And this next verse 6 here, he says, of the sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart. We're back in Matthew. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The way that each of these beatitudes is attached to one another is incredibly shocking once you study these and, and really take them in. And so, Coming after merciful, this beatitude on mercy, you get to blessed are the pure in heart. You can ask yourself this question, what is, when is being merciful most hard? When one is reluctant and divided in his heart to do that which he knows is right, to do that which he knows is good. When one is wavering in their commitment to show mercy, even though they have been shown mercy. And so this is very sobering material. I guarantee you when Jesus was preaching this, the people were probably falling on their faces because their hearts were turning on the inside of them because of what Christ was saying, being that it was really the opposite of what was being preached in 
Christ's time. And so we're talking about your heart. What is the heart? Let's say, just at the beginning, let us say that every man and every woman here has two hearts. Everyone has two hearts. One that is spiritual and one that is not spiritual. One that can be dead while the other is alive and beating. One that reflects your eternal destiny and one that reflects the reality of your mortality. And today that is going to be our primary focus is your spiritual heart. And so what is so important about your heart and what does it represent? The heart represents the very citadel and core of who you are. That from which your decisions are made. That from which your feelings flow. And that from which your personality is expressed. And this is why Solomon says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And again, Solomon says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And Hebrews 4 tells us, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this is why Christ Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your heart encompasses everything about you. It truly does. God knows exactly who you are because he sees your heart. Indeed, the priorities of your heart will reflect the purity of your heart. And the commitment of your heart will reflect the cleanliness of your heart. Your heart is clean or unclean, dead or alive. And so let us, as we proceed, let's confirm a couple of things that we do know about the natural man. That they are originally born in sin. Having inherited the guilt of Adam's transgression, they are under the guilt of all their offenses towards God. The wrath of God is over them. The holiness of the law has condemned them. And they are slaves of sin and servants of Satan. If you are not in Christ or unsure of your condition before God, you need to pay attention to God's word. This is what it says about the fallen and impure heart. Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, that every intent of his heart was evil, only evil, continually. Ecclesiastes 9, 3 says, The heart of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. And Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness look at what sin has done to that which god originally called good originally called good indeed it turns out that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart your heart my heart so what jesus is now addressing has always been the case for mankind since creation since the fall up until now not only is Jesus affirming and teaching the new birth here, but he's also teaching a lifestyle of faithful devotion to God, to the will of God. Not only that of a purified heart, but that of an undivided heart. A heart that is pure in its decisions and its motives. In context, Jesus is speaking to a primarily religious people. And so, what is the issue you find that it is very interesting that God is telling religious people how to be religious. And so the issue is that men are more concerned with themselves, as we will see and as we continue with this sermon, that men are more concerned with themselves and how they appear before others. And so they neglect faith and matters of the heart. They were externally religious and inwardly impure. And so you can see this as you look at the worship that they were offering to God. Matthew 6, 1 says this, 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. He goes on and says, So when you give to the poor, in the next verse, do not sound a trumpet. In other words, do not raise your hand, about, uh, do not raise your hand above uh, this, this, this copper bucket that they use and drop each coin in just so that people can see the fact that you're giving money to make noise and to draw people's attention to you whenever you're doing religious things. He says, this is what the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets so that they may be honored by men. And when you pray, he says, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. It is truly remarkable. This is, what, this is the worship that these men were offering to God. But what I find very curious about this is where is the direction of their worship pointed? Where is their faith? Do you see faith in there anywhere? And better yet, where is God? Where is God in, this, in these acts of worship? These people were seeking their own righteousness and not the righteousness of God. They were seeking the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And this is the opposite of what Christ teaches us as what is acceptable to him in matters of faith, in matters of the heart. And so what was Christ teaching? Christ was teaching how one is to be saved. He was teaching on the subject of salvation, how to receive a pure heart to begin with. And he was also teaching on how one is to live once he is saved, how to live with a pure heart in, in matters of sanctification. So in regards to salvation, when you hear, blessed are the pure in heart, you cannot help but think, and, and maybe even you hear some of those words uh, in your mind, you begin to think back to other passages in the Bible that you've read about regeneration and the new birth. And that, that, really, that really takes me to, I thought firstly of John 3, where Jesus is talking to a Pharisee who did not understand things of God things of faith and matters of the heart. And uh, he came to Jesus and was asking him what it took to uh, enter the kingdom of God. And this is Jesus' answer. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That would have sounded very, that would have, that would have rang a bell in, in the Pharisee's mind. Knowing the word of God, they read the word of God and recited the word of God in the Old Testament. And uh, what Jesus was alluding to, I believe, is Ezekiel 36, and it says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." And so this speaks of the man and the, or the woman uh, who has uh, been made alive by the washing of regeneration. They have been given a pure heart. It's been sifted of its, of its filthiness and impurities. And the moment they repented and believed the gospel, they were welcomed into the kingdom of God. Their hearts have been made uh, cleansed. Their hearts have been made pure and they have been cleansed. And so in regards, so that's just in regards to salvation, but in regards to sanctification, the pure in heart are being distinguished from the divided heart. A theologian, Tasker, defines the, he defines the pure in heart as the single-minded who are free from the tyranny of a divided self. And you remember what Jesus says to his disciples, that no one, 
No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And do you see what's going on here? Instead of having his sights, this disciple of Christ, right? Instead of having his, his, his eyes set on the heavens, the eyes of his heart are divided within him. It's as if uh, one, one eye was set on the life before him, the life that he is to commit to Christ and, and devoutly follow him, and the other, eye, the other eye was still on the life behind him. As if one eye was on the difficult and narrow way. He's hesitant, and the other eye is on the broad and easy way. This is not a blessed place to be for a person. Because he says, no one, after putting his heart to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. But if he or she is a Christian, by the power and grace of God, they will endure to the end and be saved. They will devote themselves and and count the cost of following Christ. And they will build as, as to receive their prize. Why? Because they have taken up their cross. And that which separates them from eternal life has been crucified. They no longer live, but Christ lives in them. And he lives in them to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we know that as Christ began a good work in every single one of us who is in Christ, he will perfect it. That is his promise. He will perfect that. And this leads me to the, uh, this next point. The seventh beatitude is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. This transition, this transition from purity of heart to peacemaking makes sense and is most natural to the soul who has been shown mercy. The sincere in heart, they love and long for reconciliation between men. And, and as well as, and more importantly, between God and men. And as Christians, we are called to be peacemakers, both in the church and in the world. And as Christ was sent in the world, as the ultimate peacemaker, so are we sent in the world to make peace. And as Christ came to bring men to God, so must we seek to reconcile dead men to the living God as ambassadors of Christ. This word peacemaker uh, is only used once in the Bible, and it is used here in our text. And what does it mean? The word peace has within it the Hebrew word shalom, which means uh, and promotes uh, a well-being, the well-being of a person. It is interested in promoting completeness and the wholeness of soul or soul wholeness the word maker describes the duty and effort of men to spread this peace to those who are without this peace so we go to places that are without peace and we make peace that is the duty of a peacemaker so the word uh this word uh peacemaking to do this work of peacemaking is an acceptable and pleasing work before God. What God finds unacceptable and despises are those who disrupt peace. So it is blessed to be a peacemaker. It is not blessed to be a peacebreaker. In Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, our Lord says there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him, Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. And Paul says in Romans 16, he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them for such men are slaves not of our lord but of their own appetites 
So to not be a servant of Christ is to be in opposition to Christ. You remember what Christ said, that those who are not with me are against me. To not be a peacemaker is to be a peace breaker. The peacemakers are said to be children of God. Whose children do you think are peace breakers? Division is the work of Satan, and saints do the work of God, which is, is, which is reconciliation. And so look at the manner of our work among the world. 2 Timothy says this, and this is of believers. How are we to, how are we to respond to this call that we've been given to Christ, and how does it play itself out? What is the manner of which we are to go to reconcile men to God. What is the manner of it? 2 Timothy 2.22, speaking of believers, it says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all men. And as Christ commands us here, in Matthew 5, 44 through 45, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And our beatitude is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That is the manner in which we go and to seek peace in the world. But look at the message of our work. That was the manner. This is the message of our work. Speaking on the new creation, Paul says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the work or the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And the world you experience, and notice two kinds of peace, true peace and false peace. True peace is of God, and false peace is of Satan. The peace that Satan promotes is hostility towards God and friendship with sin. And the peace of God promotes hostility towards sin and friendship with his son. Our work as peacemakers is not the work of appeasement with men, but peace between men and God. As John Stott says, this will remind us that the words of peace and appeasement are not synonyms. They're not the same thing. For the peace of God is not a peace at any price. He made peace with us at an immense cost. And it says, even at the price of the, of the lifeblood of his own son. So, priest, so peacemaking is a costly enterprise. It is not cheap. And so we as Christians are after the costly peace, not the cheap peace. Cheap peace cries, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That is the, the peace of God and the peace of the world. You can see a division between the two. One, one God accepts and one God abhors. This peace, peace, this is the sign, as we see in this passage in Jeremiah 6, is the sign of a false prophet when men are going to, to heal the wounds and to heal and to give men peace when God has not declared peace to them. That is not a sign of a true witness of God. It's a false witness of Christ. It was a false prophet of this day that Jeremiah was decrying in their midst. Christ did not come to bring this peace, but to destroy this peace. Uh, Christ came to do the will of the Father and thus to show us the way of peace by becoming the way of peace for us. And so we can see that peacemaking is the divine work of God. God is the author of peace. He's the means of peace, and he is the end of peace. We see in Colossians 1, 19 through 20, that for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Ephesians 2, 14 through 15 say, For he himself, Christ, is our peace. 
He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace. And so as we mentioned earlier, Christians are to promote peace in the church by way of church discipline. True peace in the church really does come at a price. And we've experienced this here. True peace does come at laying down your life and your reputation and putting your love for your brothers and sisters on the line. Sometimes peacemaking is painful. For instance, wanting to forgive someone who is impenitent, who is, who is, who is uh, not repentant. Luke 17, 3 says, If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Stott says again, he says, cheap peace can be bought by cheap forgiveness. And this, this is, this is, a, this is a, the cheap peace, this cheap forgiveness. We really do see this in, in many of the churches. And we also see that they do not care about following Jesus' commands. Um, cheap peace, which is really no peace at all, is what happens when you disregard biblical unity and truth for the sake of worldly peace. This is really ecumenicalism uh, in, in, its, in its fullness, this wanting to be friends with a lot of people who are in opposition to the gospel for the sake of unity, throwing aside the precious things of God for the sake of unity, something that God does not do. He came to destroy that peace. There's a, um, a quote here by um, William Booth. And it's not someone that I, I'm not an advocate of his theology, or, uh, but I agree with a quote that he said. Uh, and, and speaking with, uh, speaking to the, the reality of the gospel really being cast out into the streets and uh, really uh, all of the things that God desires and demands of his, his, uh, the Christians, uh, the people of God in the church to, to, uh, to act out and to, to walk in he talks about how this, this compromise is taking place in the church. And he says this, he says, The chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. And you see this, this reality, where you see the, the social gospel, where you see the cheap peace creeping in in our churches, uh, that people have a gospel uh, that has no cost to discipleship. There's no cost to count. And they're being preached faith without the call of repentance. It is only compromise and, is dissension, and is, it is deception. It is not pure religion before God. And so God brings us peace at a price, and he forgives our sins when we repent of our sins, when we are poor in spirit and made to see our misery. This is the example we follow. It is not natural to man. It is supernatural to man. It is of God. It's God's means of reconciliation, vertically and horizontally. And this brings me to my, our last beatitude here, the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it's from peacemaking to persecution. And just to make a quick note of this, you can see how wicked of a world you live in when the peacemakers are persecuted. The ones who want to be peacemakers and sow peace, they're being persecuted for the righteousness that they love. The ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, which was the couple of Beatitudes before this, are now being hated to because their love for a peace between men and peace between God. And so uh, Christians should expect to be persecuted. 
Um, Jesus said he was the light of the world, and he also says you are the light of the world. And because they hated me, they will hate you. That sinners really don't, uh, they don't like the light. They hate the light and love darkness. But Christ has called us to be light of the world and salt to the earth. And so this is what they were doing to the prophets. Uh, They are our example. And uh, there's a passage in James here and it says this, he says, of this, of, this, uh, of this suffering that they were going through, James 5.10 says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Our main reason for rejoicing is because we have the privilege of suffering on behalf of the Lord. Look at how the apostles of our Lord uh, reacted after being flogged in, uh, in order to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. And Acts uh, 5.41 says this, So they went on their way from the presence of the council of the, of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And so our reaction to persecution is rejoicing in gladness, not retaliation, A Christian can rejoice at the loss of all earthly possessions because his treasure is in heaven and he's been given a kingdom that is unshakable. He doesn't mind the loss of earthly things because heaven is his and that is his reward. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for these uh, divine words that you've uttered and spoken, Lord, and have left to, to, uh, to, to re- for us to remember and to recite and uh, to take notice of and to hide them in our hearts that we might act in a way that is acceptable before you, God. I pray that you would purify our worship, God, as we come before you. I pray that you would give us this desire and hunger to thirst after righteousness, Lord. And I pray that we would truly be those who uh, desire for peace among our family members and uh, among those in the world and among those in the church, Lord. Um, These are the true characteristics of those who are your sons and daughters that have learned from you and have experienced this mercy and this transaction of heart, have been purified and been given eternal life. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together, and I pray, Lord, that you would stamp these things on our hearts, never to forget them. We bless you, Lord, and we thank you for all these blessednesses that we are so undeserving of, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.